So if Jesus is really the Messiah, why didn't the Jewish leaders of his day recognize him? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You know, sometimes you get very complex, deep questions, very specific, very detailed. Some of them make you dig and do a little research to answer adequately. And sometimes you get hit with big questions, the basic questions, and those often are ones that we neglect to answer. So we'll do that today on The Line of Fire. We'll we'll answer some big basic questions that are asked on this thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you tonight, today. Tonight, I'm flying to California for some ministry over the weekend in Santee and Oceanside. If you're anywhere near either of those places, Friday night, Saturday day, Santee, Saturday night, Sunday morning, Oceanside, Sunday night, Santee, the itinerary listed on my website, askdrbrown.org. All right, phone lines are open. If you have a Jewish-related question, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. If it's Hebrew-related, Old Testament, Jewish, uh, language-related, if it's Jewish theology, if it is Messianic prophecy, Jewish literature, Israel Today, those are Jewish-related subjects. Those work on Thursdays. Okay, before I get to some questions, before I look at some interesting tweets, I've been sent this... uh, couple times today from the GetReligion.org website, this by Richard Osling, Biblical Bombshell, Wheaton College Scholar, Seeks to Shelve Old Testament Moral Rules. It's about Professor John Walton, longtime Old Testament professor at Wheaton, respected Old Testament ancient Near Eastern scholar, been on the show with me a couple times, and his son have a new book coming out, The Lost World of the Torah, Law as Covenant and Wisdom, an Ancient Context. And according to this headline, according to the story, here's a quote from the book. We cannot reconstruct a moral system from the Torah or any part of it. That is not what it, the Torah, is designed to do. Rather, order in society was the goal, and it was achieved through wisdom, not biblical legislation or rules. The Old Testament God was simply not imposing morality or social ideals on Israel through the stipulations of the Torah. Another quote, we cannot gain moral knowledge or build a system of ethics based on reading the Torah in context and deriving principles from it. The ancient Israelites would not have understood the Torah as providing divine moral instruction. Torah cannot provide proof texts for solving issues today. Etc. I'm actively interacting with Andy Stanley about his book, Irresistible, that, as he knows, I take very strong issue with. And this book was quoted in similar context. Uh, I have to look at it to see. Those are interesting quotes. Those are quotes that raise eyebrows, raise questions, raise concerns. But I need to read the book in the context, read those quotes in context from father and son, 
the Walton team before I can address it in more detail. Certainly, the idea that Torah equals law is a misconception. We get it somewhat from the Hebrew word Torah, which is more teaching than law. And when it does refer to a specific law, like this is the Torah concerning this or this or this, this is the divine instruction laid out for this, this, this. So yes, it is binding law in that respect. Don't commit adultery. It's not just a suggestion for sure, but it's not law in the same sense that we would just speak of it today. There is overlap, but it's not exactly the same. So the Hebrew Torah translated into Greek as namos, namos has more of a meaning of law than Hebrew Torah. Again, overlap in meaning. And then in English, we speak about the law of Moses. There's truth to that, but it's not an exact concept. Now, Judaism does speak about the written law and the oral law. Uh, At the same time, Torah in Judaism doesn't just mean law. So I need to see what the Waltons are saying before I respond more to that. Uh, By the way, when it comes to things online, when it comes to comments that are posted, responses to articles, videos, there's never a dull moment as by God's grace, our voice reaches a lot of people every week. They're always interesting responses. and I happen to catch some of them sometime. So uh, Kyle, let's put up clip number one. I noticed these were two consecutive comments that were posted to two different videos. Uh, One of them said this, Dr. Brown is a coward who doesn't take our Lord seriously enough. This is because I don't celebrate the slaughter of homosexuals and things like that. So Dr. Brown is a coward who doesn't take our Lord seriously enough. Ah, the next one, the way Dr. Brown speaks is just incredible. No one can speak this way without God's spiritual influence. God bless Doc. So if you're going to live by praise, you're going to die by criticism. And you have to take everything in a balanced perspective. At the same time, when I am mocked and hated for doing what's right, when I'm mocked and hated for the gospel, for speaking the truth, that gives me encouragement. The scripture says it should. It means we are making a difference. It means that our voice and message are getting out and that we are being identified with the Lord who was also rejected. And at the same time, when you minister grace to someone and they receive grace, that's encouraging. When you speak the truth in love and it helps someone, that's encouraging. But all that to say, <laughs> you, never, you never know what's going to come your way. And it's, it's always funny when consecutive comments, sometimes in consecutive comments, I'll be blasted for being an antinomian, so against law. And then the next comment will blast me for being a legalist. One comment will blast me for emphasizing grace too much and the next comment for not emphasizing it enough. So someone says that's a good sign. means you're hitting it down the middle. But I I just saw those and I I grabbed the screen copy of it and posted. Okay, I also noticed a couple of copies responding to one of our Jewish broadcasts, our Thoroughly Jewish Thursday broadcast, someone named Cincy Litigator. Now, the 999 out of 1,000 comments, 9,999 out of 10,000 comments keep going. I, I don't quote and put on the air here, but I happen to spot these, so I wanted to respond. So he's talking about 
Toby Singer and Moshe Shulman. Uh, just misspelled Shulman there. Singer and Schumann are legitimate rabbis because they are ordained in yeshivas. To robotically qualify their ordination with the term countermissionary is unwarranted and immature. They, they are rabbis. Brown is not, period. He obviously has, obviously has an issue with fact. You know what? Since you litigate, I don't know if you're male or female, I'd love for you to call the show. Welcome to 866-34-TRUTH. I don't know who you are, but I can tell you, you, you couldn't be more wrong in your assessment. It's kind of embarrassing when you judge people wrongly and you do it publicly only to then have your false judgment exposed. The first thing is, this is not a competition. I'm a PhD. They're not. But who's that is utterly immaterial. It's utterly irrelevant. I've never called myself a rabbi because I'm not. There's no competition. When I refer to someone as a counter-missionary rabbi, I'm specifically saying that the work that they are doing is specifically directed against people like me who are designated missionaries, sharing the faith with our Jewish people, sharing the gospel with our Jewish people. So I might refer to someone else as a social activist rabbi. I might refer to someone else as, as a, you know, a Talmudic scholar and rabbi, what, which, whatever, I'm qualifying it for clarification. So I don't know what was robotic, by the way, but that, that comment was just unfortunate. But the next one was, was dead wrong, but I wanted to interact with it. Dr. Brown, Paul based his entire religious dogma on an incident inconsistently related in which he fell off his donkey. First, it's not inconsistently related. It's consistently relayed, and there are a couple of different nuances in the Greek. Once it's understood, it's consistently related. It's relayed since it's in the New Testament three times, Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. It's actually relayed with more consistency than some narratives, parallel narratives in the Old Testament, by the way. Paul based his entire religious dogma on an incident inconsistently related in which he fell off his donkey. Actually, it's, it's not true. That was the life transformation for him, but then he based his religious dogma on what was written in Tanakh. That's, that's what he based his dogma on, and that's where God gave him insight. So he encountered the Lord, yes, then the scriptures open up to him. Yet you hang on his every jot and tittle, written in letters to churches, considering them divine and unimpeachable. Meanwhile, you mock thought games eruditely expressed in the Talmud and thereby rejected as authoritative. Where is your equal measure? Perhaps it is constrained by church authority that enforces your view of Paul. First, I'm not under some church's authority. Okay, that's the first thing. I'm not part of the Catholic Church or particular denomination that's going to enforce something on me. That's the, the first thing. I'm a, a Jewish follower of Jesus and, and part of a congregation and part of the body of Messiah worldwide. The second thing is I, I use equal weights. That's the thing. And I would challenge you, since the litigator, whoever you are, male or female, I challenge you to do the same. I look at Paul's treatment of the Hebrew Bible and I look at Talmudic treatment of the Hebrew Bible. And I understand that each can, can be homiletical at times or, or use what be called the midrashic approach or, or draw an allegorical meaning and things like that and, and can look at things differently. I understand that Rabbi Shulman has been emphasizing in some teachings he's been doing how, how Christians and Jews will, will look at Scripture differently and concepts of inerrancy and infallibility. They'll have different views on those things. We can debate that or dialogue about that or or interact with one another on that, that's fruitful, fine, that's great. Um, but I'm, I'm not mocking a thought game in the Talmud and thereby rejecting this authoritative. I understand what's going on. Some things just like a math equation. 
In other words, the, the goal is not to come to a solution, but to do, to do the equation. And hence, what, about 300 times in the Babylonian Talmud, the conclusion is teku, Aramaic for let it stand. In other words, there, there is no definitive answer to the debate back and forth, but it's there for the sake of the discussion and, and the, the weighing of the different views and the sharpening of the, of the legal mind, etc. So I'm not mocking that. What I am saying is when it, it, it comes to certain conclusions and goes in a certain direction, and I'm just supposed to embrace that as somehow inspired. Well, let me compare that then to something of, if that is, is considered to be choice Talmudic literature, reasoning, let me compare that to something in the New Testament. Let's compare and contrast. That's all. Equal weights, equal measures. Let's be consistent in our treatment of both. Even if we approach things differently, let's be consistent. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. If I can wipe the slate clean and be someone I've not been, maybe I'll find God there. Welcome, friends, to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. That was a, was a different clip. I've heard that one before. I don't know how tied in with Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, but I'll find out shortly. 866-348-7884. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. In a moment, or a few moments, I want to answer a question that was recently posed to me. If Jesus is really the Jewish Messiah, then why didn't the Jewish leaders of his day recognize him? Or subsequently, having rejected him, why didn't they in subsequent generations recognize the error of their ways? After all, even if they rejected prophets in one generation, they accepted them in a later generation. So why not the same thing with Jesus? Fair questions. We'll come to them in a little while. Right now, I want to go to your calls, 866-34-TRUTH. We'll start with Gavin in Cleveland, Ohio. Welcome to the broadcast. Hey, Michael. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you. Awesome, awesome. Hey, I'm calling to uh, ask you a question about uh, Isaiah 714. Right now, I'm going through the book of Isaiah and trying to really read it in context, and uh, especially for the Messianic prophecies. And I hit 714, I'm like, how is this? about Jesus in context, um, and I've pretty much read every commentary, get my hands on, watch the videos, I have the five volumes as well, and I'm wondering, uh, how do you feel about the, like, dual prophecy that uh, Michael Rydelnik and David Stern talk about, that uh, 13 and 15 are one prophecy specifically about Jesus, and then 16 and on are about Isaiah's son? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't accept that view, that there's a turning from the one to the other, uh, you know, pointing to to Sharia Shuv, who's who's there, or or some or the reference to the the child of Isaiah that's born in, in the in the eighth chapter, Maher Shalach uh, Let me let me state simply how I explain it, and with all respect to the different views that that Michael Rodelnik and David Stern mm-hmm. have, there are certainly people I'd love to have uh, on the same team if we were doing a you know a commentary or a debate or something. So much appreciation to them and their work, but. Uh, number one, 
my principle of interpreting Messianic prophecy, which is found at the end of volume three of my series, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, is, is that every prophecy must be interpreted in its original context and that unfulfilled prophecies that were given to the house of David reach their fulfillment in the Messiah. I'll give you an example. Psalm 2 is widely viewed as a coronation psalm. And it may have been spoken over David when he became king. And the king would be recognized as God's son, adopted as God's son. And it would be proclaimed that he will rule over the nations, etc. Well, it never fully happened. David, with all of his rule and Solomon even extending that rule, it still was never the whole world. And and it crumbled quickly in the divided kingdom and so on. And even the unique language of God saying this day, I've given you birth is, is quite strong for the installation of the Israelite king. But now that becomes part, excuse me, part of the Psalms. It becomes part of the liturgy. Well, when did it happen? It never happened. So you now look for the fulfillment of that in the future. In other words, it was spoken about a king at that time. Let's just say, you know, that, that you were the 10th in, in the line of, you were Gavin the 10th, right? And I said, God has promised you, Gavin, you know, that, that, that you will, will be the greatest star in the history of sports, et cetera. And you end up like playing a game with the Cleveland Browns and that's it. And, but then like four generations later, Gavin the 14th, he does it. So you, you have a lot of prophecies like that in the Hebrew Bible. And I believe as Matthew was looking back, he didn't just read Isaiah 7. He read Isaiah 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. So let me explain. What happens in Isaiah 9? A child is born to us, right? Son is born to us. A child is born to us, son given to us. And it's a messianic prophecy. Even if it was initially spoken over Hezekiah at his birth, the fact is he doesn't fulfill it. He doesn't bring in right. that everlasting kingdom of God. But it's spoken as if he was already born immediately on the heels of the destruction of Assyria. Uh, and, and, you know, that's the context there. His birth brings the destruction of Assyria. And then the 11th chapter is the son of Jesse who's going to rule and reign over the earth. So those are clearly messianic, Isaiah 9 and 11. I believe Isaiah saw the 7th chapter, which definitely was initially a word for the days of Ahaz, that there was going to be some birth of significance that would serve as a message to the house of David. Notice it's one of the only two times in the book of Isaiah that the house of David is mentioned, and the Hebrew is plural. How long are you, you going to wear me out? It's, it's plural, all right? So God is not just speaking to Ahaz, but to the house of David. There was an attempt from, the, from Israel and Aram to destroy Judah and to put in an imposter on the throne, Ben Tavel, some worthless one, put him on the throne instead. And, and God says, look to me, I'm going to, well, Ahaz is, is, is godless. He's not going to do it. God says, well, I'm going to give you a sign. And this is going to be the sign. On the one hand, the child born is going to be Emmanuel. God is with us. On the other hand, judgment, destruction are coming. Who was right. that child? What was the significance of his birth then? That's debated. You can read a hundred different commentaries, Jewish and Christian, and they'll talk about the, the significance of the prophecy then and what the sign was. And there's constant debate about it. What was the nature of the sign? What was the prophecy? All Matthew sees now it, and, and it's clearly a birth of some supernatural proportion through an Alma, a young woman, all right? Matthew now looks and says, what do you know? The Messiah, who is literally God with us, born of an Alma, who in fact is a virgin, this is whatever Isaiah was originally speaking of, this is what he's ultimately speaking of. 
And we know that, uh, that Matthew has chapters 9 and 11 in mind because in the fourth chapter of Matthew, he quotes from the beginning of Isaiah 9. And in the second chapter of Matthew, he makes reference to the Messiah being born, uh, uh, going to live in Nazareth, and says, as, as the prophets, plural, said he'll be called a Nazarene. Where, does that, where did the prophets ever say that? Well, one of the relevant verses is Isaiah 11, that he'll be a Netzer, the Messiah will be a Netzer. So Matthew's clearly looking at the 11th chapter, clearly looking at the 9th chapter, clearly looking at the 7th chapter. So the short answer is, this was a promise of a birth of supernatural import and significance with blessing and judgment given to Ahaz that finds its full meaning in the coming of the Messiah. So whoever that person was that was born, that was called Emmanuel, etc., they disappear from history. We know nothing more about them. But the prophetic word of what was going to happen now finds its ultimate fulfillment in the Messiah, the son of David, just like many other promises to the line of David. Very good, yeah. Appreciate that. Yep, sure thing. So if you reread in volume three where I treat this, uh, hopefully that will, will be clear. Uh, you, is it a direct prophecy? There are many prophecies that you could say are direct, but they have a journey. They start here, right? Is there a direct prophecy in Ezekiel 36 about the regathering of the Jewish people to the land of Israel in the last century? Yes, but it starts with a prophecy about the return from Babylon. Many prophecies have that. They start here, only partly fulfilled. Now we see the rest. All right, let us go to Jose in California. Welcome to the line of fire. God bless you, Dr. Brown. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I had a question uh, regarding uh, the modern state of Israel uh, in comparison to the um, the old covenant state of Israel when, yeah. it, was, uh, like, when it was a theocracy um, back mm-hmm. then. Yeah. But uh, I wanted to ask about that in regarding to how the Church sees them today. And it's not, it's not such like a theological question. Or a biblical question. It's more like um, like a church question because I come my my church circle are Baptist mm-hmm. and Assemblies of God. So that's kind of the people that I associate with, and right. also like independent charismatic churches. And I see what I've seen, and we've all seen it. Um, I don't know if you've seen this in in the circles that you're in, but we see that the churches especially Hispanic, because I come from Hispanic churches, so they're Spanish-speaking churches. And we see this as, as um, they kind of, they uplift um, the state of Israel to a point where they, um, like, it, sometimes it's, it's, they have to put it, like, in every sermon. Yeah, let me just jump in, Jose, because I've got a break and, and I want to be able to answer first. Uh, first, through church history, the church has often done the opposite of this, denigrated Israel, said God's finished with Israel, often persecuted Jewish people for not believing in Jesus, forced Jews to give up any Jewishness to become part of the church. So I, for one, am glad to see the pendulum swing in a way that blesses Israel and recognize, recognizes how God has restored the Jewish people, not because of our goodness, but because of his goodness. And, and the roots of modern Zionism were anything but godly people reading the Bible. And I mean, some were, but others were just socialists or atheists or different ones or irreligious. And, and so God, God brought us back. And we should recognize it because it's fulfillment of prophecy. We should recognize it because the devil will oppose it. 
We should recognize it because Jesus is coming back to a Jewish Jerusalem. We should recognize it because it's, it's a token and sign of God's faithfulness, God's ongoing faithfulness. He keeps his word. He keeps his word. Even when we fail, he keeps his word. At the same time, Jose, we cannot raise Israel up to idolatrous proportions. We must recognize that the nation needs the Lord, that although there are many outstanding, wonderful qualities about Israel, Jewish people sin like everybody else. Israel sins like everybody else. Israel needs the Messiah. So we recognize God's hand on Israel. We rejoice in that. We keep Jesus as central in our preaching, and we pray for a spirit of repentance and brokenness that the Jewish people in the land, both the religious and the irreligious, can turn to the Messiah. So I hope that's helpful. Let's recognize what God's doing, but let's not do so in an idolatrous way. God bless you, sir. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. I was waiting for the... All right, there's the Jewish music. Okay, came in a little differently there, but there we are. It is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Michael Brown, thanks for joining us, 866 348 Seven, eight, eight, four. If you've got Jewish-related questions, we'll do our best to give you solid Jewish-related answers. Before I go to the phones, a question came up to me the other day. Why, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, was he not recognized by the Jewish leaders of his day? Of course, I've been asked this many times, but it just came up freshly, and I responded, gave my answer, and I said, look, Let's understand that many times through history, we've rejected God's messengers. And even though we ultimately received Moses, then through our history, we rejected the law that Moses gave, bringing about our destruction. There are other prophets we, we resisted, according to Jewish tradition. We killed Isaiah. We know how we persecuted Jeremiah in the Bible. There are even Jewish traditions that say we persecuted all the prophets, etc., so why should it surprise us then when the preeminent prophet, the Messiah himself comes, that as a nation, not individuals, but as a nation, our, our leadership rejected him? Why, why should that surprise us? Well, then the question is, well, why should we believe that he was right and they were wrong? Well, of course, we have the prophecies that point him and indicate the Messiah had to come and suffer and die and rise from the dead before the second temple was destroyed, that he'd be rejected by his own people and become a light to the nations. We have all of those prophecies, which are quite substantial. But God himself acted. Uh, Look in Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, and beginning verse 41, as Yeshua approaches Jerusalem, he weeps over the city saying, if only you had recognized this day the things that lead to shalom, the things that lead to your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you and your enemies will surround you with barricades and hem you in on all sides. They will smash you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they won't leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Tragically, 
because we rejected the Messiah. Think of this. The temple was destroyed 40 years later. Great destruction came on our people in Jerusalem and throughout the land. And then 100 years after that, another destruction, two failed Jewish revolts. And, and the temple's still not been rebuilt to this day. And through mo most of our history since then, we've been exiled and scattered around the world. It would seem that something very wrong happened, that we did something very wrong, that we rejected the Messiah. You say, but why haven't Jewish leaders since then corrected things? Well, for the most part, 99 plus percent of Jewish leaders don't actively consider whether Jesus is the Messiah, whether Yeshua really could be the Messiah. And I understand you grow up in a certain religious system. You believe that system, and then you do your studying within that system. If you ask your average Christian why you don't believe in Muhammad, they'll, they'll explain why they reject him, not because they've studied the Quran or evaluated Muhammad. I understand why rabbis haven't freshly evaluated, but for the vast majority of rabbis, there's not been an honest searching out to find out who Yeshua really is. Not only so, this is part of judgment that we came under. We reject him one generation, the next, the next, the next. It becomes more natural to keep rejecting him. The good news is that there will be a national turning, that the day will come when we will look to the one that we pierced on a national level and turn back. Also, the New Testament records that there were many Pharisees who believed. There were many priests who believed. And one of the most brilliant Jews of all time, his writings is incredibly influential, Saul, Paul, he became a believer. Uh, and there have been learned Jews, including rabbis, over the centuries that have come to faith. But that's not the proof of anything. The ultimate proof is, what does Scripture say? Who is the Messiah? And God has acted in history to say when we rejected him as a people, we made a terrible mistake. How much more clear could God have made it? <clears throat> 8663 truth Go over to Travis in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome to the line of fire. Thank you for taking my call. I sure appreciate your ministry. Thank you. I wanted to, yes, I wanted to ask you about um, Ezekiel 28. Our um, Bible study in, uh, in Murfreesboro in Tennessee is studying spiritual warfare, and one of the topics that come up and often do in spiritual warfare yep. is the nature of the devil and chapters that uh, possibly pertain to him. I wanted to get your um, your thoughts on whether or not twofold you believe that uh, the judgment for the king of Tyre in Ezekiel twenty eight is actually a reference, kind of a, a veiled reference to Satan, and if so, there's this notion often that's very popular in traditional teaching that uh, um, that Satan was like a choir director in heaven or something like that, based on the language right. in the King James anyway that talks about pipes and timbrels and them. But the Alexandrian text, like the NASB, says that it's more like settings and sockets. And I was just wondering if you could maybe set that straight for me. Yeah, so just to mention, when you speak of Alexandrian text and, and uh, NASB, say, versus King James or Alexandria versus Byzantine, that's entirely New Testament text that's unrelated to the Hebrew Bible. So okay. there, it's, sim it's, simply, right, it's simply a matter of translation of, of the Hebrew. So number one, I do believe that as God is judging the king of Tyre and judging him for his pride, that he now begins to speak about the demonic power, the spiritual power behind him, and that this is a reference to Satan. So beginning verse 12, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre. Say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You are in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorns you, ruby, topaz, diamond, 
Beryl, Onyx, Jasper, etc. Uh, you're an anointed guardian cherub or cherub. I placed you on the holy mountain of God. You walked among stones of fire. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Yeah, there, there's no question that that's talking about the one that we refer to today as Satan. No question. So even though the king of Tyre is being rebuked, that this is a rebuke to Satan himself, who obviously worked through the king of Tyre. So this, in that sense, would be the most detailed description that we have. Isaiah 14 is related, but this would be the most detailed description we have of the beauty of this one that we know as Satan today, the adversary, the accuser. Uh, the, the Latin Lucifer or Lucifer is light bearer and comes from Isaiah 14 where this fallen one is called Hillel ben Shachar, shining one, son of the dawn. So originally this, this glorious angelic being of, of unparalleled beauty and honor, this is the one who then allows pride to enter his heart and rebels against God. As for the notion of, of timbrels and your tubes with music and things like that, as, as much as we'd like that to be true because you can then tie in how Satan knew the importance of music and so he was the worship leader in, in the heavenly temple or something, it's, it's not what the Hebrew does say. So it's, it's something that is interesting but not the best translation of the Hebrew. Got it. Is um is there a debate amongst um, scholars like Bible teachers that uh, that the King of Tyre, when it's talking about his uh, destruction, that he's going to be seen amongst men, or that he was uh, he was um, a, tra- a traitor? Um, he's in like I'm trying to say the words properly about, about trade and how he was cast down because of his trading properties, and and there's this idea that you know how is that referencing Satan if Satan fell before man was even on the scene. And some of the other language, like later in Ezekiel, it talks about a different king. Um, I think of one of uh, Egypt being in the uh, in the Garden of Eden as well. I was wondering if you had any thoughts or, or ideas about that, or is that universally accepted? Well, there's, there's debate about Old Testament scholars in terms of how to interpret this and how much should be read with reference to uh, with reference to uh, to Satan. But when it talks about the actual judgment, it's talking about the king of Tyre. I believe the most natural right way to understand that is that the judgment it's speaking of is the judgment on the earthly king. It's speaking of the spiritual power behind him and, and giving us this revelation about who Satan was in the beginning. But the actual judgment and the specifics of that, I don't try to, to, to interpret that with regard to the Satan or judgment on him. I understand that specifically with regard to uh, the king of Tyre. And, and by the way, the, it's in verse 13 where there's the question of the end of the verse, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes. So it's tabrets and pipes in King James, timbrels and pipes in New King James. But you'll see other translations, for example, um, CSB, mountings and settings, uh, ESV, settings and engravings, NIV, settings and mountings. Uh, NET settings and mounts, the um, New Jewish translation, uh, yeah, same, let's see, go beautifully wrought for you, mind for you, prepared the day you were created. So uh, none of these other translations understand the words 
in any musical term, and, and I would certainly uh, agree with that as well. All right, Travis, thanks for the call. Much appreciated. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go over to Aaron in Fort Myers, Florida. Welcome to the line of fire. How you doing, Dr. Michael Brown? Doing very well. Thank you. Very well. Um, so I had a question um, whether you believe the uh, uh, Asia Israelites were monotheists or if they believe in other gods. And if they did not believe in other gods, uh, what would you do with some verses uh, such as uh, Psalm 8-5, where it refers to uh, the angels, or it translates the angels, but the word is uh, Elohim. And then you also have other verses in Psalms 86-8, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so, yeah, so let me, let me answer the, the question, then, because the second right. part won't be necessary. Of course, we know that through much of Israelites' history, they worshipped all kinds of other gods, and, and they were polytheists, etc. But was worship of Yahweh monotheistic or monolatrous? So monolatry would be there is one God who is greater than all the other gods, and monotheism right. is there's one God only. Certainly the Old Testament viewpoint is in terms of a creator, in terms of the one who ruled and reigned, who had authority over nature, who was greater than all, there's one God, one God only, no question about it. However, you have verses like, just Exodus 15, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Or Exodus 13, God says, I'll bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. So was there a recognition of other powers, other beings that were called gods? Yes, no question. God ruled and reigned over all of them, but he alone was the creator, eternal God. The other is not worthy of being called God. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome to 30 Jewish Thursday, Michael Brown. Delighted to be with you. So one last word, Aaron, clearly when you go to passages like Isaiah 40 through 48, there is the exaltation of one God and one God only, and no other being is God, no other being can be compared to God. And that is clearly the message. But as I say, especially in earlier texts, was the recognition of other beings, other spiritual beings of power that were worshiped as gods by others, and that the Israelites could say there is no God like you. Uh, absolutely. But look, we could also say the same things. Lord, there's no God like you, even though we don't believe in other gods. We're just saying, as God, you, you are the one and only true God. So again, as the creator, as the one who was eternal, as the source of life, Israel was monotheistic. As far as acknowledging the existence of other so-called gods, who were completely subject to Yahweh and who could be destroyed at his whim or desire, just that was recognized. There was a spiritual realm that was recognized and these beings called, be called, could be called gods with a lower case G in that respect. Thank you for the question. 
for truth. Let's go to Jacob in Corksville, Tennessee. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Um, okay, so I have my question is about um, the book of Revelation. If you talk to a someone who was a Christian, born Christian, raised Christian, versus a Jewish convert um, to Jesus, their understanding, uh, obviously on the New Testament, is always different, but Revelation is is so incredibly different. I've heard, you know, everything from each chapter is a repeat of the book of Exodus to, um, you know, a further elaboration and prophetical thing of Leviticus 23. Um, uh, well, what is the differences between uh, usually the, the Messianic uh, converts versus uh, someone, you know, with a Western Gentile mindset? Um, what's right? Obviously, we know John was Jewish, so... Yeah, so here, yeah, Jacob, I, I would not, uh, look, every, everything helps when you can do your best to get in, into the original context and background and so on, you know, for, for sure. That, that's always helpful. But in a case like this, uh, Revelation is what's called uh, apocalyptic literature. And, and that's the number one thing, to understand it's visionary, to understand yeah. it's filled with symbolism, to understand it, it paints various pictures of contemporary events as if it's the end of the age and the end of the universe. And other things do speak of the end of the world as we know at the beginning of a new world. Um, I don't know personally that there is one method of interpretation that you could say this is the, the valid one. For sure, it's been pointed out that out of the, what is it, 404 verses in the book of Revelation, as many as 278 borrow from Old Testament imagery. We know that yeah. John writes Revelation in an unusual Semitic style. It's not normal Greek. He, he writes it in a very intentional Semitic style as if he's writing with Hebrew grammatical principles in Greek. That's, that's also known. There's only one verse that's, that's actually quoted from the Old Testament in Revelation. That's from Psalm 2 uh, about the Lord ruling with a with a rod of iron yeah. uh, but beyond that uh, the important thing is to look at the symbolism then to look at the larger meaning that's drawn to compare it to other apocalyptic type literature and there's a reason that to this day uh from messianic jews to traditional christians revelation is is read in many different ways i i grew up in a church that read it as aside from the messages to the churches at the beginning that the rest of it was for the, 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 the future and the tribulation and we'd be raptured out, etc. Uh, yeah. in, in our book that Craig Keener and I wrote due out next month, March 19th, not afraid of the antichrist while we don't believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. He lays out his view, which sees a lot of it as, as past events and things unfolding until we get to the end. Uh, I, I try to read it and just kind of take it in spiritually because I still don't know, where I come down on it, to be honest with yes, you. Sir. Uh, so I, I wish there was a simpler answer and that I could be of greater help, but it continues no, no. To, to be an, an, an overwhelming book to me. Look, look, what is clear though is if there's any book you can't separate from its Jewish Old Testament roots, it's Revelation because it's so ingrained sure. in so many places. But beyond that, I don't know that there's a Jewish interpretation versus a Gentile interpretation it's such a, a glorious and mysterious book. And uh, maybe maybe one day when I'm like 98, I'll, I'll give keys for understanding the book of Revelation. I'll figure it all out. Uh, okay. All, all right. right. Thanks, that, 
Yeah, you're very welcome. Uh, and so the different interpretations put forward, they're, they're all worth looking at. They're all worth looking at. All right, let's go to uh, Anton in New Orleans. Welcome to the line of fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown, for having me today. I, I have a question that I guess has to do more with historical documents. But I was looking at First uh, Samuel 13, where it's talking about Saul's age and how long yeah. he reigned. Yep. And as I noticed, different translations had vastly different numbers there. And the research seemed to say that there was a, a bug had eaten part of the text or it had <laughs> deteriorated where they couldn't read the first number, but they could read the second number. And I guess I'm wondering, in all the different fragments of text that they have, they haven't been able to clarify that as number one. But number two, my the version of the Bible I was using initially, it didn't have that in italics. And I just, I guess I have this assumption that when they've added things in for readability or understandability, it's printed differently, like in italics or something else than the regular print. Well, it all depends on which translation. For example, if you're reading, say, the King James or New King James, and something is added in for clarity, it will be in italics. Other translations, it's not. And hopefully there's a footnote that tells you differently. Yeah, but if, if I'm reading the, the Hebrew literally, Ben Shana Shaul, Bumalcho, Ushteshani Malacha Yisrael. So if, I, if I'm reading that literally, it's either Saul was one year old when he began to reign, or he was one year in his reign and he reigned for two years. So some, something's clearly missing. The Tanakh, the New Jewish Publication Society, translation, which is also called the Tanakh, says Saul was dot, dot, dot years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel two years. The question is, it doesn't seem that he only reigned over two years, which would indicate that something was missing. He reigned 30 in two years or 20 in two years or 10 in two years, which is the way you express right. it in Hebrew. So when we go to the, we go to the book of Acts, what's written in Acts 13, 21, then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And then there's some other traditions that put the number 30 there, that he was 30 years old when he began to reign, and then he reigned for 42 years, which is rounded off to 40, or is it some other number? So the fact is, there are some different ancient traditions. Josephus also speaks of him reigning for, for 40 years. But we don't we don't know for sure. Something is clearly missing from the text. I was interacting with an Orthodox Jew the other day, and he was trying to explain how nothing's missing and it should be interpreted in this way and that way. It's just, it, there, there are normal formulas that are used. There are normal ways of saying things. So number one, there's nothing in terms of our faith, in terms of foundational beliefs, theology, truth, anything that's affected by this. That's the first thing. The second sure. thing is, Look at it the other way. There was enough reverence among scribes and others to not just try to fill in the blanks, that it would have been so easy for someone to just fill in the blanks. So you, you do have some other traditions that come in, and maybe they're accurate, but something was missing. We don't know what. And because scribes were reverent with the text, they, they, they copied what they had rather than just put in something else of their own. So Sure, it, and I really appreciate that aspect of it. but. I mean, I guess I'm under the impression that there, there are thousands of ancient manuscripts and do none of the others 
um, reference this part of scripture for clarification? Okay, so they're they're actually, uh, in terms of the Hebrew Bible, they're not thousands of ancient manuscripts. They're thousands of medieval manuscripts, right. but not not ancient. the The ancient manuscripts are Dead Sea Scrolls, and that's uh, that is different parts of of the Bible. Now, if I was if I was looking at uh, for example, you can type in, all right, say Dead Sea Scroll uh, translation. Well, we'll tell you what, do, if I have time, do I have time to, to pull up this quickly uh, and look at, let's, let's see if we can just do it quickly. But uh, to my knowledge, this is not covered in Dead Sea Scrolls. But what you have is thousands of Masoretic manuscripts, okay? And yeah. those are from the from medieval you know, so from let's say seven hundreds, six hundreds, for you know four or five hundred years, we have these these key manuscripts. So, uh, in point of fact, you do have many of those, and here and there you have alternate readings. Here and there you'll have different manuscript readings, and there are compilations of these where scholars then look at all of this. Uh, uh, can I pull this up? Yeah, let's see if I can get this. Clock is ticking. We're running out of time. First Samuel. So here, the the thing is, if you have, uh, no, you don't have First Samuel 13, from what I can tell. Uh, uh, maybe I'm missing it, but don't see it here. Anyway, bottom line is, we don't have a lot of manuscript evidence filling in the blanks, as you might expect. Uh, mainly it had been codified, so this is how it was passed on, passed on, passed on. By the time you get to these later texts, they're copying and passing it on. But I will check once more to see what variants we have and maybe comment on it early next week. Out of time, hope to see you in California this weekend.